0: Welcome to Comet Talk, a production of the Bishop Kelly Happy Hour Laboratory, where we share our class of 1974 stories. Hello, I'm your host, Barry Williams, with John Addison as co-producer and fact checker, and Jim Reed as our editor. Our guest today is our editor, Jim Reed, who lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and has for, for many years. Welcome, Jim. How are you doing? So uh, if you'd like to share, what's what's going on this week for you?
1: uh this week is uh it's all stuff i'm working on the house i'm redecorating my guest room which uh, i'm turning into a library i've bought new bookshelves and I'm having them installed i'm gonna buy a sleeper sofa to put in there and uh, so you know i don't want to encourage any guests but you know if one happens to show up you know i'll have something i can use so.
0: that sounds that sounds exciting. Um... I know I saw a picture of your bookshelves. They're going to be beautiful. And I know, I know that uh, you love to collect all kinds of things. And I, one of the, the big things that uh, most people know or may not know is that you are a collector of old
1: films. Yeah. I started uh, collecting 16 millimeter films in uh, 1972 when I was going to Kelly, actually.
0: But, but I'm a little bit curious. What, what do you think that you're? Your interest in film started.
1: I always, when I was a kid, I was always interested in old movies. I mean, when we were little, that's basically what was on TV. You know, it was uh, uh, right now, you don't see it much anymore because they've got infomercials. But back then, they filled time with, with old movies on just about every channel. So I it was just used to watching them. And it, it just always interested me. I've always been a big history buff. So to me, it was kind of like, a that's kind of like living history a little bit, movies. Plus, you know, my parents who grew up in the 20s and 30s, they would see something on an old movie and my mother would tell me about, oh, I remember seeing that when I was 10 years old. So that, that part always just really interested me too. You
0: know, when we grew up in Tulsa, back in the day there was only really four stations right? The, right the so you had public broadcasting and then you had the other three major major local
1: networks i know channel 8 was was always really the best station for the old movies and then uh, uh, but they all ran old movies and channel 2 on sunday mornings would run a comedy theater with uh, laurel and hardy and wc fields and Albert still own those guys and, and that really got me interested and i've always laurel and hardy have always been the number one for me huge laurel and hardy
0: fan we'll probably revisit a little bit about your as i, I explained to you earlier that there was actually a term called cynophilia which said sounded, sounded like it was some type of infection but it's actually yeah. a person who really loves is a cinephile cinephile uh, yeah. that really really loves uh, to to follow and to uh, to uh, be part of 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 movies not only current but in the past and their collectors but before before we go there a little bit of little back history so your lead up to bishop kelly and then then possibly some some of your thoughts about your time at bishop kelly
1: well i went to uh went to grammar school all eight years at saint mary's went with a lot of, of, of other kelly folks i tended to be uh, kind of uh well, I, I I'd always kind of had a little bit of a self-esteem issue the whole time growing up, and I always pretty much tried to cover up a lot of that with humor, and which of course doesn't really work well in a classroom run by a nun, you know. I can remember taking my swats several times. They used to they used to poly up in front of the class and. Give
0: you a few swings. Well, I, I've I've always um, envied your history at St. Mary's because you matriculated with people to Bishop Kelly, and you, you you had lots of relationships. So some people you have known that that are now part of your Bishop Kelly family. You've known for seventy years, would you say? <laughs> Sixty <laughs> years. Sixty yeah. years. Maybe. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, Something like that. Yeah, but there's, yeah, like some of those people uh, I even knew before St. Mary's because St. Mary's didn't have a kindergarten. So a lot of us in that area went to uh, Holmes Elementary School. I ran into a guy about 15 or 20 years ago when I was in Tulsa. And I asked him, I said, are you that? And he was one of the guys I'd gone to kindergarten with. So I hadn't seen him since, what, 1961? Yeah.
0: So you moved, you moved into to uh, Bishop Kelly very smoothly because you you knew a lot of folks that, that were there. What was, well, so, some of well, those early memories.
1: Yeah, Kelly was the place, you know, you just you just knew when you were done, you were going to Kelly, except for a few people in the class that ended up going to Hole. you know. Other than that, the majority of us went to Kelly.
0: But how many of those do you think it was?
1: Probably 25, I would guess, somewhere. Because I think our class at St. Mary's was 30-something kids. and. You know, some of them probably ended up going to public school. Some went to Kasha, but uh, the majority went to Kelly.
0: Well, I also uh, recognize in in some of our discussions, especially some of the other podcast interviews that we've been on, that um, there also was a social structure that was associated with the local parish that you were in, uh, parents knowing each other children kind of growing up together and then moving on to to high school where that 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 structure was still there mm-hmm. in some fashion in terms of just knowing families um I, I think that that that's that's really probably an important thing as well in terms of that feeling that 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 family as you moved on to Bishop Kelly.
1: I grew up on 48th Place between Owasso and Norfolk. They bought that house in 1954, two years before I was born. And when they moved in there, St. Mary's was just being built. The first year or two, they went to church at the Brook Movie Theater every Sunday. Once the church and school were finally finished, my mother always worked in the school cafeteria, and she also set up the whole library system there. Ken Blades' mother actually ran the school cafeteria. Ken grew up across the street from me. His parents were kind of almost like my second parents, really. I remember Mrs. Blades used to, she knew what my favorite food was and whenever they had it on that day she would always uh, bring home extra and you know bring it over to the house for me you know which is probably one reason I was quite heavy by the time I got out of St. Mary's.
0: Well and that's a name from our past that a former grad that we probably have lost track of Kim Blades. Yeah he lives
1: in the Houston area somewhere but I haven't he was here on business three or four years after I moved to Dallas and we went out to dinner together that's that's the last i've heard from him his parents have passed and my parents have passed the connection is kind of not there anymore
0: well jim thank you for sharing some of that we're going to take a quick break and in our next segment we're going to talk about the the kelly years uh so uh, everybody just hold on go grab a cup of coffee we'll be back in just a little bit Hello, folks we're back with comet talk and we're we are talking today with jim reed hey jim thanks for being with us today we we uh just finished a segment we talked about some of your pre uh kelly history and now and now we're going to talk a little bit about you know some of the highlights of your your life at kelly so at just top of mind jim what what uh what would you like to share with us about your kelly life
1: highlights is maybe overselling it a little bit, but uh, I, you know, I look at Kelly as uh, I consider it a little bit of a, a, a wasted opportunity because Kelly is such a good school. And I was just really not a motivated student when I was there. You know, I just, and I look back now and, and if I could redo that, I, if I would had just put in more effort, I think, that that would have turned out so much better for me, but I, you know, like I said before, I was uh, really low self esteem, and it just I tended to try to, you know, blend in with the the woodwork, you know. So but,
0: did you you mentioned effort? Um, is how does would that manifest? Would have manifested itself in your work at Kelly?
1: I really didn't put a whole lot into the classes. I, I was kind of able to just skirt along and and you know do C's and throw in an occasional B but I was really never much of a student I just really think I could have done much better if I had just put in effort you know and who knows maybe that would have maybe that would have sent me to college later which I ended up only doing you know a, a, one semester of college but I enjoyed going to Kelly it's kind of like going to somebody's birthday party and you don't know anybody there. You know, that's kind of the way I felt when I was there.
0: Well, that's that's an in- interesting contrast to coming uh, to Kelly from St. Mary's, several, several folks, I think you mentioned maybe approximately 20 or so possibly traveled with you from St. Mary's to Kelly. So at least you had, had those ar- around but yet you know we had a class of 177 who knows what our freshman class size would have been right. um, probably somewhere in that neighborhood and uh, so that's really 20 20 people is really a fairly small percentage you know maybe 10 percent of the class maybe maybe a little mm-hmm. bit more so I can I can appreciate that as, as being an outsider coming from public school to Bishop Kelly it, it, I understand that whole that whole social uh, structural, differential that happens when, when you, when you come in. Um, so did you, even though you, you feel like you didn't apply yourself, did you have some favorite classes?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I've always been a huge history, but especially 20th century U.S. history. In fact, you know, I can remember when we had a, uh, U.S. history of the 20th century, I think it was Coach Anjuri's class. And everybody was assigned to write a paper for the class about a different subject, to pick a subject of, of American history in the 20th century. And I remember I did mine on Lon Chaney, you know, who did, did the silent movie star, did Phantom of the Opera.
0: And uh, we always kind of joke, I guess it's still true today in some cases, but maybe not in some of the high schools where coaches are really not teaching. Uh, as they were at Bishop Kelly, they were double duty. They were coaches and then they were usually a history teacher uh, of some form, whether it was Oklahoma history or U.S. history or something that, you know, was kind of cookbookish, you know, it's just like.
1: Well, there were two coaches. There were two coaches that I had. uh, I had uh, U.S. history with Coach Angieri, and I had English with Coach Crosby. On both of those classes, they would bring in the uh, the home game of Jeopardy, and they would actually divide the class. In each row was a uh, a team. They would we would play Jeopardy.
0: So were were we doing any uh, sentence diagramming in Coach Crosby's class? Uh,
1: not those days. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That seems
0: like a lost art. No, Nobody really nobody really gets into that anymore. Neither did I, even when it wasn't a lost art. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think the first time I, I met you was probably through history and through some of the more of the extracurriculars that were around history. But before we talk about that, was there, a, a, we, we've talked about a couple of, of our teachers. Was there a teacher that was a standout for you in terms of, of um that, that, that kind of was formative for you?
1: Well, I'll fall in the line as of course, Brother John, later Michael, was my favorite teacher, you know, I regret that I didn't have him for US history cuz I, I would have enjoyed that. I had him for world history later on, where the Western Civilization, I think they
0: called it. Yeah, I think they yeah. broke that into two, like Western Civ One and Western Civ Two.
1: And then there was, a, there was some sort of current events class I remember I had him for, too. And then also I used to, uh, you know, he ran the snack bar down in the cafeteria, the after-school snack bar. They had, you know, a soda fountain and a popcorn machine and all. And I used to go down there and work for him in that, selling sodas and, and popcorn bags
0: of popcorn. Yeah, I reminded him one time that he did the statistics at some of the football games so that they could uh, up in the box so that oh, if really? it was ultimately was a tie, there it wasn't overtime play. The penetrations were, were used as the Marker for who wins the game, and he he didn't remember that. Uh, I I do remember sitting up there. I don't think it was I don't think it was any of the other brothers that were involved involved yeah. in that. But I I really I didn't remember the snack the snack bar. That's 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 really that's kind of cool. Uh, so activities, things things that you love to do when you're at Kelly. I
1: I was sort of in. I was I was a lurker in the 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 war games club they had. You know, I wasn't really smart enough to actually go in and play the games they were playing. Just being that it was all kind of history based, I was I was kind of periphery of that.
0: Yeah, so you probably recall was it Avalon that, that produced the board game? So they had Gettysburg and they had right, right. they had D Day and they think they had some Pacific like Guadalcanal yeah. or or whatever. That was kind of the the foundation for taking taking a complete room on a weekend and turning it into a battlefield.
1: But i i think I've shown you before i have the newspaper clipping that my grandmother kept it was the newspaper photographer went out there when they were doing a war games thing over the weekend there was a picture in the paper that had me in it and they had the whole classroom all the desks pulled out of the classroom and it was all set up with made into this giant map and all the little different armies that people were moving around
0: you had mentioned one time before and in, in a joking way because there was a type of penalty that was inflicted upon somebody, I think it was in Brother Roland's class.
1: Page 850.
0: 850 of what book?
1: It was the U.S. history book. Page 850 was the index in the back, and it was very, very tiny print. I mean, to copy that page was like an all-night. When you had done some infraction, you know, he would just point at you and page 850, page 850. Yeah, Brother Roland and I had a kind of a complicated... Relationship. I had a brother who was six years older than me, who uh, had ADD. At the time, nobody knew what ADD was, and he had a really hard time in school. And a lot of teachers just really were not helpful to him. Brother Roland kind of remembered my brother, and so when I showed up and was not the most motivated student, he just immediately painted me with the same brush. You know, we we never really had a very good relationship.
0: I do recall Brother Roland. I think I had maybe either freshman or sophomore theology. We were doing the New Testament, man's good news, the good news Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I do recall of him that he, I guess he was a former smoker or loved to smoke, but he would chew on a big pen. I mean, it just to the point that just, you know, those clear big pens that it's just it was just this thing that looked like something had gnawed on it. And he mm-hmm. would sit there in class and chew, chew, chew on that, that pin. So that's the, I, I guess the teachers didn't have a smoke hole to go to uh, during, during hours. <laughs> so that was the, that was the only way they could, they could deal, deal with their nicotine addiction. A, any other standout events that, that, that you can recall from, from Kelly that you'd like to share both, both positive or negative.
1: One of the things I really enjoyed was also too, was. Uh, uh, senior theology which was christian service which is where i met the uh, co-producer here of the uh, of the podcast that uh, john and, and julio marino and i used to drive every day over to saint mary's school and we tutored little kids you know and uh that was that was i really enjoyed that that was that was really rewarding john and julia would drive back to kelly and i had a pre-sixth hour. So instead of going back to Kelly, you know, I was at St. Mary's, which was, you know, three or four blocks from my house, and I still wasn't driving. Uh, I would just head on home from there. So.
0: Well, it's very interesting, and we've seen some comments on some of our prior podcasts regarding uh, the implications of Christian service program at Bishop Kelly and what that meant to different people. And how it had uh, motivated some and, and, and inspired them to go into uh, their professional fields of, um, you know, as working with, with uh, people with special needs. And uh, we've, we've heard uh, Carolyn Bivens, I mean, my goodness, she, she talks about that and other people talk about it as well. Uh, that they, they were at various places around Tulsa uh, working. And so that's obviously ha- had a real positive benefit for you as well. So what we're gonna do, uh, Jim, before we, we move on to, to post-Kelly years, we're gonna take a quick break here, folks. So you can run, grab a cup of coffee or whatever you need to do. We'll be back here in just a little bit with Jim Reed. Welcome back, folks. We're here at, with Comet Talk, talking to to Jim Reed. Jim has been sharing with us his extracurricular activities. And uh, Jim, is there anything else you'd like to uh, share with us about Kelly before we we talk about the post Kelly years?
1: I had a uh, a spectacular athletic career there at Kelly, which was I went out for freshman football. My dad really, I think, I was his last chance to get a kid that played sports. You know, because my uh, my older brother just really wasn't into it, and my, and then the brother that was next to me, six years older than me, uh, uh, are kind of severe arthritis. I had actually come down with a form of arthritis not long before I started at Kelly. Also, he he went ahead and kind of talked me into going out for freshman football, and so I can remember that I went out and the first few practices I went out and. Grand laps, and I was was doing okay. I mean, I was kind of a little too heavy to be doing a lot of that stuff. You know, I was pretty out of shape. Uh, I can remember that the first time we all suited up in our pads and everything, we went out, and we lined up against each other. You know, they called the snap, and this guy hit me and knocked me about five feet back. I got up and took off my helmet and started walking back to the locker room. My career was over. Can't remember who the coach was at the time, but he was uh, he was walking next to me about halfway down to the locker room. Going, are you gonna be a quitter? You're not gonna be a quitter, are you? And I said, Yeah, I just quit. You know, <laughs> it was just like, I'm sorry. This is this is just not for me. So, and that was uh, that was probably the end of my athletic career because I had actually played. I played touch football and, uh, and about six or seven years of little league baseball when I was at St. Mary's, but, uh, just, you know, when you go to Kelly, it's on a whole different level. So, and I was just not, not a good enough athlete for that. So.
0: Well, thank, thank you for sharing. I, I suppose your, your dad, it was too soon for your, your family to have pictures of you all suited uh, out and wearing your, pretty, your, mu- your... pretty much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, th- thank, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, and I'm sure that, that uh, is probably not the first person to, to experience that in finding their sport and, and, w- and whether they would enjoy and excel. I, I know you found some other places that, that uh, you, you enjoyed and you excelled. And uh, why, don't we, why don't we dig into your post Kelly years a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what happened and, and uh, how, that, how that basically led to an incredible career that you've had.
1: Well, it, it kind of all started. I mean, you know, I'd always been into the movie thing and had started collecting the 16 millimeter films uh, while I was at Kelly. I bought my first film, and right after that, Sister Casilda, the librarian, called me down one day. I had talked to her about all the 16 millimeter projectors that they had there. She called me down, and they had just gotten two brand-new Bell & Howell Thread. Projectors, you know, which were the big thing at the time. She said, "And we've got these two old RCA 400 machines, which were about mid 1950s vintage. If you want, I'll sell them to you for seventy-five dollars." So I, I had my McDonald's money there. You know, I was working flipping hamburgers at the time, so I bought my first 16 millimeter projector from from the Bishop Kelly Library. During senior year, my brother was having a garage sale. I went ahead and put a bunch of 8 millimeter films, and I put them in this garage sale. So this guy showed up. His name was Tom Ledbetter, and he had worked at Channel 8 and had actually played Shaggy Dog on the old Mr. Zing and Tuffy show back in the 60s. I got to talking to him, and he was now the uh, general manager of the Tulsa City County Cable Television Channel. Which was in the basement of the library downtown. And when uh, when cable, Tulsa Cable, had started up a few years before, part of the charter was that they gave the city their own cable channel. So that this cable channel would produce shows on any city or county agency, like it could be the zoo or the street department or just about you know just about any other one. And they had studios down in the basement, and then two days a week they would unhook the equipment, roll it across the parking lot over to the city commission room and broadcast the city commission meetings. He invited me to come down and, and do some volunteer work with him because they did a lot. They worked with, a lot with volunteers. I ended up almost every day after school at Kelly, I would head downtown to work at this place and uh, I did the city commission meetings and I learned to run camera, and I learned to run audio, and I learned to to switch, you know, to, to direct. It kind of got me, got me interested in that. After graduation, I started at Tulsa Junior College, but I had just gotten out of high school, and I just was not really interested in going back to school again. That just didn't work out too well that first semester. In December, we were having finals, and I was supposed to go in and take this test one day. And I showed up, and there was a sign on the door that said the professor was sick, and they would reschedule the test. And so I was like, okay, i got nothing to do today. So just on a whim that day, I went to all three TV stations and filled out applications, just to see what would happen. About a week later, I get a call from the production manager at Channel 8, a guy named Glenn Blake. The thing was, Glenn had been a friend of my brother's from Kelly. He said, "I saw your name on the on the thing, and uh, uh, why didn't you know? Why didn't you come see me when you were here?" And I, said, I didn't know you worked there. And uh, he said, "Well, come on in, and we'll talk to you, see what we got here for you." And so they ended up hiring me as the runner, which was you had a van and you pretty much would uh, deliver tapes to the. Either, you know, the bus station or the airport or the post office, or if you had to run things to, you know, the other two TV stations in town, you know, like, you know, you would, we would produce commercials and then make copies for the other two stations. So, you know, you did a lot of those kind of deliveries. Well, they hired me for that, but before I actually started work, they found out about my arthritis that I had in my back. And so they were like, well, you know, this is a lot hauling around a lot of heavy tapes. So we don't think we can hire you for this job. And I'm like, oh, great. I had my foot in the door and they blew it, you know. And I was, oh, I was depressed. And uh, about a week later, the phone rings again and it's Glenn. And he says, uh, I know that didn't work out for that other job, but something else just opened up. And uh, why don't you come in and talk to me about it? So I went down and and the job was, it was two different jobs. It was two days a week I would be switching commercial breaks, you know, actually, and running in the film and slides on TV, you know, doing all that. And then the other two days a week, I actually went in and I would cut the movies. I would put the breaks in the movies or, you know, if, say... Say the movie was 15 minutes too long for the slot they were putting it in. I would have to go in and cut that 15 minutes out of the movie. And so, since since I was already collecting film and knew how to splice film, you know, I pretty much had it made for that job. Uh, so I started that, and it, that was really great because I would come in on th- Thursday, which was my first day in the in the film room. The first thing I was supposed to do. Was read up the, all the weekend movies and actually s- just sit and watch them. So I got paid to just the first time I ever saw Citizen Kane was sitting there watching them in the film room at Channel Eight. That was it was just kind of the natural job for me. But after a while, the other part of the job, which was the, the switching part and the actually running the on on air part of it, got to be more interesting to me, and so. I ended up going to that full time later on, which was you basically, you ran all the commercial breaks until you newscast time. And during the newscast, you actually were the guy back there loading up all the news film that they would shoot for the news stories. They would, the way they would do it is you had two different projectors. And so they would run what they called sink which was when they would, when it was time to roll the The story, you would roll both projectors and then you would sit there and watch the film come down on the other projector and you would cue the director in and out of the film. They would dissolve from film to film chain to film chain and you would have to sit there and cue him in and out of it. I really enjoyed that part of it. And then after about two years of that, they promoted me to director. And from about 78 until I left there in 81 uh i directed the news the, the five thirty and 10 o'clock news that was really interesting and then i, I would also a lot of days come in and, and direct the kids show in the afternoon which was when i first started it was uh uh uncle zeb and then he left and uh, they had two or three other people doing doing that but uh, so i did that sort of thing and i i did uh I did team rodeo one time, which was uh, out at the Fairgrounds Pavilion. And then uh, during football season, we were really busy because I was directing the news at the station. So on Saturday, I would have to get up early Saturday morning after directing the news at 10 o'clock the night before and get up real early Saturday morning and drive to either Stillwater or Norman whichever was the uh, home game, because we did both the Oklahoma and Oklahoma State coaches shows. I would go there and either uh, run character generator, you know, do the name supers and all, or do uh, slow-mo or some other job. I'd sit there and do the game, and then at the end of the game, they would edit real quickly about a highlights tape together and hand me that cassette. And I would get in my car and race back to Tulsa as fast as I could, which I actually got it several tickets. I would race back to Tulsa and get back to the station, give the news department the highlights tape, go in, get ready and do the five o'clock news. Yes. That night on Saturday, uh, John F. Wahn Furniture Company, we used to we used to do their commercials on Saturday night. So I would direct those during between the two newscasts, and then I would do the, the, the 10 o'clock news. And then by that time, whoever the away game was, either OU or OSU, the guys who had shot it were, were already back at the station, and they would put together a highlight tape. And I would take the two highlight tapes, of OU and OSU, we had to make like fifty different copies of that tape, and then I would have to cut them up, put them on reels, and label them because they were mailed out or they were put on buses actually and sent out to like every television station in the in the, the uh, region to get highlights to these games. It was kind of this, this we sold these highlights to, so I, we would finish that about two or three in the morning. And I'd go home, go to bed, and then I'd have to be back first thing Sunday morning to work on whichever the away game was. The coach would be at the station the next morning, and we would do his coach's show at the station. So we would record that, we would finish that around noon. And then we had an hour or two to take a break. And then at one thirty, I directed the uh, Tu coaches show live, which that was actually they had shot that on a sixteen millimeter film. This is Cooper was the guy's name. Who was he? Later was the Ohio State head football coach, but uh, John Cooper. He was a nice guy. About the time I finished that, I had to start getting ready for the five o'clock newscast on Sunday, and I would do that. And then Sunday night was the night when people came in and did PSAs. So I do PSAs all between the two newscasts, and then do the ten o'clock news, and then uh, those were that was my weekends during football season.
0: Well, I could just imagine the advent of digital technology, the the ability to move data instead of having to physically deliver, you know, a tape on a reel or later the big umatic cassette or oh, smaller like cassette yeah, yeah. It, w- it was like, you know, we could just transfer the data that had that had to been crazy about about when did that start to happen for you where you could actually move data at uh, digital data um, rather than through physical tapes
1: i didn't really run into that much until probably the mid 90s so, yeah.
0: so as your as your career progressed uh, at uh, in in that in the television industry specifically as a director, um, I know you 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 moved from one station to another uh, that ultimately led to you being here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. What yeah. what was that like?
1: Well, I, by 1981, I was like I said, I was I was working seven days a week a lot. A guy had came to town. And he had bought one of the UHF signals that was in Tulsa, channel 41. He bought uh, or rented the old Lerner Dretsch shop on the main mall downtown and turned it into a TV studio. he had decided to do his own local version of CNN. And they called it 41 Live. And it was uh, they would do it between noon and 7 o'clock every day. And then at seven o'clock, that, that TV station, they would run movies. So it was a regular TV station until seven o'clock and then the TV signal was scrambled. But uh, And they went and hired a bunch of actually really good people. Uh, uh, they hired uh, Beth Ringel from 8, who I had worked with at 8, John Hudson from Channel 2. Oh, John Erling did our, the guy from KRMG Radio did the uh noon to two o'clock show which is uh, which they remember they had a performance stage out on the main mall in, in downtown near those fountains so if there was a band that was playing during the lunch hour on the main mall we just stick our cameras out there and you know shoot this band for you know for part of the show but uh and then, let's see karen keith you know who uh Later was Channel 2's anchor and is now a county commissioner in Tulsa. She was a reporter there. And uh, anyway, they uh, had hired a guy from Channel 2 to direct it. And he was not a director. He was a master control switcher, which is kind of a whole different thing. Because master control switcher, you're just pretty much punching the buttons. But as a director, you have to be able to tell the cameramen and the audio people and and the, the, new, the news anchors and all and you have to tell them what's going on and tell them cameraman what to shoot so they realized pretty quickly that that they needed a director and they asked everybody there at the station and they, a lot of them had worked with me at eight so I ended up getting a call from them and they offered me more money than I was making at eight but I was like I would only be working like seven hours a day, Monday through Friday. So I mean, that sounded really good to me. So probably foolishly, I went ahead and took the job, and uh, and it was it was actually pretty fun for the three months until they decided to pull the plug. They ended up laying this all off, you know, which happens a lot in broadcasting. You know, they they decide to change formats. It happens more in radio, but it it happens in TV. So that. Uh, I was out of work for a couple of months. And then uh, somebody called and told me that OETA, which had on, only had a station in Oklahoma City and only had, and had transmitters in Tulsa and Lawton and several other places, that they had gotten money from the state to actually open a studio in Tulsa. And so they were looking for a production manager and, you know, some camera people and and, uh, news director and that sort of thing. And so they told me about this. So I went down to the state office building and uh, went into their offices and said, I'd like to apply for the production manager's job. The girl behind the desk told me, oh, I'm sorry, that's already been filled. And I'm like, oh, great. Here I'm out of work and they they're opening a TV station here and I I miss out on the job. So I go home and I I wasn't home an hour and the phone rang. And it was the station manager from channel eleven who introduces himself and he says, I was given your name by some people and I'd like to talk to you about our production manager's job. And I said, Well, I was just up at your office and they told me it had already been filled. Well, it turns out They had already decided to hire me if they could get me. And so they told her not to, you know, not to bother if anybody else asked about it. So I pretty much lost a job to myself.
0: That had to be a feather in your cap. I mean, to, to, but unfortunately the communication wasn't great, but, uh, and you had to go, go through a little bit of angst, but, uh, on the other side of the hand, uh, it, uh, is, uh, was, uh, a not of the cap to you uh, as far as what you had established yourself as a director. Uh, so, uh, I'm, it's, it's a blessing that that worked out as it did.
1: And plus the fact that they were building it from scratch. So, I mean, right then we just had offices in the state office building down down on Houston. And, uh, so I got in on the, you know, being able to buy the equipment, and and when we fu- we finally set up studios, it was actually in an old pizza inn, four blocks north of, of Admiral on Sheridan, and it was not only was it a pizza inn, but it had a warehouse on the side of it because that's where they kept all the supplies for all the pizza inns. And- in Tulsa. They decided to make that warehouse into the studio, so we got to go in and build a, a lighting grid, you know, and then I got to, you know, buy the, the lighting package, and I got to work with the two, two Kelly graduates there. I worked with uh, Richard Daddell and Gretchen Haas. They were reporters there, and, and uh, they're still really good friends.
0: You know, so what, what's funny about that is, is that uh, just down the street at uh, basically on Sheridan at about where two, is it 244 uh, crosses Sheridan? Right. Yeah. There was a company that, that specialized in building video equipment right there on that corner. I worked there for a couple summers during, during college. And then of course, this was uh, fortuitous for you because you became very close to Martin's barbecue just down, down the road from there. And uh, you've got a oh, chance yeah. to, to have some of that fantastic barbecue bologna.
1: Oh, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, yeah. In fact. That it was, I got so addicted to Martin's that that after I moved to Dallas, every time I would go back to, to Tulsa for Christmas or whatever holiday, I would always go out to Martin's and buy a gallon of the sauce to bring back to Dallas with me because I, whenever I made barbecue down here, I used Martin's sauce.
0: So how, how did you make it to Dallas-Fort Worth?
1: When I worked at Channel 8, I worked with a girl named Cindy Martin, who uh, they hired her as a first as a character generator operator, and then they promoted her to director. And so when I was doing the Monday through Friday newscast, she was doing Saturday and Sunday a lot of the time. And she she and I got to be really good friends and still are. She left Chandler just about the same time I did, and she went to several other stations and then ended up in, down in Dallas at KBFW, which is a CBS affiliate and she worked in the promotion department as, as a writer-producer. And that the, they would, she would write and produce uh, promos for the newscasts and all our, our different programming, you know. mostly newscasts, though, news promotion. They decided that they wanted somebody to direct the post-production on their, uh, their promos. So because when it was time to actually put their spots together, they would have to go up in the control room and they worked with the, the directors who were the guys who were mainly newscast directors. And I guess they had trouble with a lot of those guys. And so the guy who was the, the department head decided he wanted his own director and he got Got that? It approved in the budget, and so they asked all of them. You know, do you know any directors? And so Cindy called me and said, uh, "You know, is this something you'd be interested in?" And the day she called me, I was sitting there nodding off, watching Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. So I said, well, "Yeah, I think it's time for me to get kind of, kind of get back into it because public television was slower than the commercial television. You know, it's it's just uh, in public television you, you had." 8,000 meetings before you did anything, you know, whereas in commercial television, you know, it's like, you know, you got to get it done now, you know, because, you know, time is money, you know, you got to move, and uh, so it, it was a real, it was a real difference, so so I was ready to go when she called me, and and so I started at, uh, at KDFW, and I, like I said, I directed the post production up in the control room of, of uh, uh, all the different producers, all their stuff. And then uh, when I wasn't in the control room working, I actually edited syndicated programming for, you know, we did, uh, I can't even remember all the shows we did Golden Girls, I think, and All in the Family and those sort of things. So I would do promo for every day of the week of those you know you'd have to go into the show and pick out a clip and you know put that together so that's kind of what i did for the first eight years or so that i was there in dallas and at kdfw and uh, then technology kind of changed and i had gotten a, a a new boss who was a younger guy and he was he was a real sharp guy he had just come from uh, a demonstration of a thing called Avid, which was the first nonlinear editing system. Which is basically where instead of you know editing using machine tape machines, you actually digitized everything into a computer and then just did all your editing there. You know, online. It's it's basically what everybody's doing now, but back then it was like this is witchcraft. I you know I've never heard anything like this. You know, so. That's really changed my job because suddenly I could do everything sitting at a keyboard that it would have taken me a control room with two technicians, uh, a tape room with two guys working there, an audio booth with a guy working in there, and I could do all of that and actually do a better job just sitting at a keyboard. And so my job really changed at that point. And I became pretty much a full-time editor. And I went from director to editor so that's what I did up until July 1st of 2020 when uh I retired kind of takes me to now
0: so so Jim tell us so uh, now that you've retired yes. um and after all these years in in uh media being from a from a director let's say to to uh a, a, an editor uh how do you do you picture spending your time
1: after about Uh, let's see About three or four years after I moved to Dallas uh, my brother called me one day and his son uh, was with his uh, with his grandmother my sister-in-law's mother was uh, visiting some relatives over here in Irving over in her Texas stadium my brother said that he was bored because he was you know over there with a bunch of women, you know, visiting. And and he had, you know, nothing to do. Would I be able to go pick him up and take him to do something fun, you know? And so I was like, well, I knew he was really big into baseball because they like to watch Atlanta Braves baseball. I looked and found out that the Rangers were playing. And so I bought tickets to a game and went over and picked him up and took him out there. And it just so happened that the game that night was the first time a Ranger had ever hit for the cycle. I had played baseball when I was in elementary school for five or six years, but I hadn't really been that huge a fan. I just got hooked and it was like, you know, I need to start going to more of these games. Then the next season, the Rangers signed Nolan Ryan and that just really got me going. And so I, while he was here, I went to every Nolan Ryan home game except for one the only one i missed was the one where Robin Ventura charged the mound I went to the Nolan Ryan 5000 strikeout game I uh, went to the 7th no hitter i mean it was it was pretty exciting and in 95 when the all star game was uh, was out at the ranger stadium my station was the sponsor station for the uh, all star fan fest and uh, we did some promos for the fan fest and uh, we did him with nolan ryan so i got to go out and direct the promos out at the ballpark i still have a hanging on my wall right over my head here i have a picture of nolan that i had shot while he was warming up for a game one night i got him to autograph that so i still got that hanging on the wall up here i had season tickets for a few years but uh, they put me on a night shift uh, suddenly that kind of cut down my going to games but uh, That's something I'm hoping to do more of, especially now that they've got a new stadium out there that's air-conditioned, you know. Nothing better than going to an outside game when it's 110 degrees out. So, yeah, I'm still a huge Ranger fan, and uh, they were one strike away from winning the World Series back in uh, 2011. But just the the words Game 6 still put a cold chill in my heart, you know. Um, Well... In, in 2000, I got an email from another film collector who lived in, in up in Plano, which is where you live, Barry. He had have lived in Chicago for a long time, and the collectors up there always used to meet about once a month and have movie nights, you know, at a different person's house each time. He wanted to try to get that going here. And he knew three or four different collectors in the Dallas area, and I knew three or four different collectors and we ended up getting together and we started having monthly movie nights so i had been always been collecting films i had pretty much just been running them for myself i got the opportunity to to do films at different places like i ran films at the texas theater which is the theater where they caught the harvey oswald and I've, I've done a bunch of different shows there and the Plaza Theater in Garland and the, the uh, Majestic Theater, which is the only big movie palace left that in uh, downtown Dallas. I've done several shows there. So I, I just uh, have gotten back into, like, running films. And I'm the projectionist for the uh, Kansas Silent Film Festival. And last weekend of every February, I pack up my, uh, my two projectors and put them in the car and head up to Topeka and set up in the the White Concert Hall at at, uh, at the, the college up there. They have a weekend festival, which is all silent movies, and they have a an organ, and they bring in a, a little chamber orchestra that plays, and then uh, they also have a piano, and they have a percussion guy, and so they do all sorts of different silent movies, and, and most of which are run on 16 millimeter films, so I run them off my projectors if anybody's in the Topeka area last weekend of February you ought to come because it's it's uh, a lot of fun to, to actually sit and watch an old silent movie with live musical accompaniment and it's free so that's a good thing too you know all you have to do is show up and walk in the door and and uh, since I've gotten associated with those people they're they're the friendliest people on the face of the earth that I've ever run into. So that's, you know, that kind of thing, you know, just a lot of film shows and, uh, and then I try to make it to some film conventions when I can. Uh, My favorite is, is Cinecon uh, convention, which is, uh, Every Labor Day in Hollywood. And up until this year, they've always had it at the Egyptian Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, which is uh, was opened in 1922. It was where they premiered Robin Hood, Douglas Fairbanks. And uh, it's a beautiful old theater, but uh, Netflix bought it and is remodeling it. So it wasn't available for us. So they, the, in the Legion Theater this year. And then, uh, you know, uh, I'd go to Cinevent in Columbus. And then there, there was one in Syracuse that I can't remember the name of. And there was actually one that was all nothing but comedy movies up in, uh, in Arlington, Virginia. It was called Slapstickon. And then uh, they have a thing also that I go to June every year at the Library of Congress in Culpeper, Virginia, called Mostly Lost. The Culpeper Library of Congress place is where they keep all the the old nitrate film. It's like they have the original camera negatives from things like Frankenstein, which is the camera negatives means that's the film that was actually in the camera, running through the camera that day that they actually shot the movie. It's amazing. It's this bunker built into the side of a mountain. and You go down in there and the vaults are like 45 degrees because they have to keep it just really cold for the, the old nitrate film. They're just vault after vault after vault. It's, it's just incredible to see this. But they have a thing there every year that, you, that a bunch of us go to, and they have a theater in the Library of Congress. And we sit there, and for four days, they run. They do pre- some presentations, but then they also they run unidentified film. When they run this film, if you see anything that you recognize, whether it's the star of the film, uh, if you can tell where it was shot, the kind of cars that they're driving or what years the cars are, you know, so, so that they can try to put a date on it that way. But people just sit there in this theater and they yell out things. And then there's people on the side of the room that are taking notes. You know, and, and so they, they write all this stuff down so they can identify all of these films. And they've identified probably about half the films that they've, that they've run. But it's like everybody's sitting there and they've all got their laptops out. You know, everybody's got the, you know, is like whipping things
0: up well jim that's uh, that sounds exciting it sounds like you've got a lot of things that are you know we used to call a vocation was you know your work then you had an avocation which was where you took a hobby and you kind of turned it into work but it wasn't work it was you know creative it was something that was exciting something to that that to look forward to over the horizon um and i really appreciate you sharing your avocation uh with us even though it really isn't a job for for you because of just the love that you bring bring to it and and then the fellowship with the folks that 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 are into the very same same thing opening your house to to uh having your the uh club sessions and movie nights and all those kinds of things i think even during pandemic you were able to you were able to to transmit over zoom and get cre- creative there as well you know as we start to wrap up our discussion today and um one of the things we always like to talk about is people's uh, opinion on uh, class reunions. And uh, I know you have gone to several over the years and, um, and are looking forward to others. What, what would you share about class reunions and what would you like other people to know about them?
1: Well, I, the first class reunion I went to was the 10th year reunion, which was actually the summer uh, before I moved out of Tulsa. And I had heard that they were planning this reunion, so I ended up going and meeting up with the committee. And so I worked on that reunion. I, uh, you know, being that I was at the, at the uh, Channel 11 at the time, I had a lot of free time over there. So I would put together a lot of video presentation type stuff that we ran on monitors there at the uh, uh, at the reunion. I was kind of, I don't know, at first I was kind of dreading the whole thing. When I went to the the committee meeting, uh, the people there were all people that I really hadn't known in high school, but they were extremely friendly so I felt better when I went to the 10th year reunion and then there at the reunion I remember people being extremely friendly and I have a really good time. I seem to remember having a better time at my 10-year reunion than I did in high school so, and then uh, I didn't go for a long time of course you know moving out of town. So a few years ago when a lot of us from the class started connecting on Facebook, they started talking about, I guess they were doing many reunions and I hadn't really heard about them, but uh, Kathy Deisler was, had sent me a message about, you know, that I ought to come to one of these. And and this was uh, back in, I guess, 2019, the 45th. I went to that and had a great time. There were, you know, probably a handful of of St. Mary's people in there that I had gone to school with for a long time, but the majority of the people were people that I really didn't know at Kelly at all. And they were extremely friendly and and you know interested in what I was doing and had a great time just just visiting with a lot of them people I had I'd never talked to before, and uh, I just really had a great time. And that was that was later on when uh, when. Barry and John the two of the three of uh, us had started this this zoom happy hour thing I know when the mini minireen came up this last summer I was really kind of pushing for you guys to be sure to go to this because I had had such a good time and I really thought you guys would too you know and I'm I'm, I'm really glad you did I'm really looking forward to the next one. you know I'm hoping we have a mini and you know some
0: I understand uh, that, um, uh, you know, we we currently had the minis in summertime now that most people are retired. I might be sure that's even a necessity anymore, but um, I thought that's kind of interesting. And and someone mentioned to me one time that the the bigger ones that are put on by Bishop Kelly um, are sometimes in the fall uh, so that they can kind of group that with, uh, you know, some sporting event like football or whatever. Uh, so it'll be interesting to to see that. Well, yeah. So we are we are looking forward to, f- to future minis and the the big the big big numbers, the five zero, which happens in twenty twenty four, which is really the purpose of this of this podcast is to encourage people to participate and to learn about other people, so that when they go to the reunion, mini or big, that they start at a different place uh, when they meet somebody again, almost for the first time. Mm-hmm. Well, well th- thank, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, I do have a, a list of questions that I try to ask everybody. And so, uh, and this probably will get edited out, but we're going to go ahead <laughs> and, and do this. So, Jim, what's the best sandwich?
1: Oh, the best sandwich? Uh, ooh, ooh. Uh, ooh, a roast beef sandwich from Kelly's at Revere Beach in Boston well
0: yeah that's specific very good (laughs) yeah that's specific
1: wonderful wonderful
0: so what is the scariest animal
1: scariest animal uh crocodile Mm.
0: apples or oranges apple have you ever asked someone for their autograph
1: of course yeah many yeah
0: and what one stands out to you is this your top other than Nolan Ryan that, uh, that since he was a Texas Ranger? Uh,
1: well, there's actually there's a couple. I I went down about nine thirty on a Sunday morning when it was like ten degrees outside to some hotel up in Richardson, and we had bought these advanced tickets where you could have Mickey Mantle sign something for you. So I took a baseball down there, and I noticed we were going through the line, and Mickey Mickey looked like he had really tied one on the night before. He he was looking pretty hungover, so he was just not, you know, as people went by, you know, he was just not looking at anybody. He just had his head down, and he would just take the ball or the bat or whatever, and just sign it and hand it on. You know, it just you know, people tried to talk to him. He just was not, you know. So when I got up to him, I was, I just, you know, I, I gave the, the guy the, the ball. And when he handed the ball back to me, I said, thank you. And I just kind of said it really loud right And it probably was not great for somebody with a hangover, you know. But he just looked up at me and he said, oh, you're welcome. So I was like, I got a reaction. So that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I actually I get to meet him later. Uh, we did a show, uh, or or carried a show for a while that was done by some local production company in town. And it was they had set up a bar. It was like a Cheers type bar, and they had the uh, Randy Galloway and one other newspaper sports guy from around here, uh, beat writer. And, and then a guy who was the host of the show and they would talk over what was going on in sports and they would have different guests. And uh, so we found out that Mickey Mantle was gonna be the guest that week. And uh, so there was a, uh, there was a producer that I worked with, this really cute blonde girl. And she said, uh, their boyfriend would love to have a a Mickey Mantle signed baseball. And if if she got me a baseball, could I take it and get it autographed? And I said, well, knowing Mickey, you know, this cute blonde girl is going to have a much easier time getting an autograph than I will. So I just kind of talked her into going, but uh, went along with her. And and, uh, he was, that was actually after he had, uh, had, quit drinking and he uh, he was much much nicer guy he was he was very friendly that night so
0: well that's a that's a great story so um yeah.
1: and then michael kane we got michael kane also he was uh, 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 he was in town he had he had written his autobiography and uh, he was on our noon news and there used to be a taylor's bookstore downtown and uh, so i found out he was going to be on the new news and so i ran a, the two or three blocks to the taylor's books and got a copy of his of his book and and ran back over and so when he walked off the set he was uh uh he autographed it for me but i mean i i expected him to just autograph it and walk on and he's like ask ask me my name and where i did at the station and you know it's how long have you worked here and he just stood there for like two or three minutes talking to me, which, you know, when when you meet a lot of those people, they don't do that, for the most part. But he was one of the nicer guys that I've met. You know, him And, and also, uh, back when they opened the, uh, right after they opened the, the big uh, uh, performing arts center downtown in Tulsa, uh, Red Skelton was there and did a one man show. And uh, one of the guys who was the, when the producers at that at the Tulsa City County cable channel had gotten permission to shoot part of his show to put in a thing on the Performing Arts Center that they were doing, and uh, so he called me and said, Hey, do you want to go along and be my grip, help me carry stuff? Yeah, you know. So we went and set up in one of the lighting bays, we're just right off the side of the stage, and shot sat there and watched the whole show and shot the whole thing and just the second the curtain was down for the last time the guy was there with you okay drop the equipment let's go and we ran over there and and, uh, he was standing there putting all of his props back in the big trunk and and uh we got his autograph and he again kind of asking you know what we did and you know you know are you from Tulsa you know is just real friendly really friendly guy
0: that that was that's that's a fantastic story so uh, what's your favorite action movie
1: favorite action movie i I'm, you know i'm a sucker for uh hunt for red october
0: <laughs> least favorite smell
1: uh let's see the uh, sewage plant right off the 51st street bridge at the arkansas river How about your favorite smell? Um, Probably driving by the Wonder Bread
0: plant. Well, we used to drive by the Mrs. Baird's plant at Mockingbird at Central Expressway in Dallas, and they moved that. Then we found out that 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 smell that we really like was uh, actually something that destroys the ozone, (laughs) which was even even more incredible. So uh, is exercise uh, worth it?
1: Uh, I wouldn't know.
0: <laughs> Flat or sparkling? Flat. Most used app on your phone?
1: Hmm. Probably my calendar. I guess get to the- track of all my doctor's appointments.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's fun! You get you get one song to listen to for the rest of your
1: life. What is it? Oh, that's easy. American Pie. Very good. My favorite song of all time.
0: What number am I thinking of? Seven. Wrong. So Jim, tell me, what is your favorite hamburger? Uh,
1: my favorite hamburger is a Goldies hamburger, vintage 1980, because I've had them lately and they're not nearly as good as they used to be. So that's that's probably that. Or or a Claude's hamburger from Tulsa. Claude's down on Peoria. And uh so that those were good but my favorite in Dallas is oddly enough from the uh, a restaurant called Fish City Grill which I don't eat seafood so every time I would go there with friends I would always get a hamburger which of course would you know make me the uh, object of ridicule at the table but it's still they have the best taste in the hamburgers there I mean Their hamburgers taste like the Goldie's hamburgers did in nineteen eighty.
0: So what what do you think is that common thread that makes that hamburger taste really good to
1: you? I'm guessing it's that seasoned salt they use, this kind of stuff that, you know, really puts holes in your brain, you know. So
0: So is it's not the condiments necessarily?
1: Well, I don't have condiments.
0: Oh that's right. You just have meat and Cheese, yeah. do you have cheese?
1: I don't, yeah, I'll have I'll, it, It's not, it's that's not a deal killer for me, but I'm not a big cheese fan as far as cheese on hamburgers so, But, so, uh, yeah, yeah I'll, ketchup is okay, ketchup and tomato. I can, I can do ketchup, ketchup or tomato, and I both at the same time.
0: Well, you, you make for a very challenging um Reviewer of hamburger. If you say, you know, because sometimes they cover up the yeah. flavor or add flavor with condiments, and you're just saying, no, I want the bread and I want the meat, and yeah. and, and so you're just you're basically, you know, tasting the hamburger.
1: Well, um, I know if it's a good hamburger. Or not.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Jim, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, to our discussion today that uh, you'd like our listeners to to know about? And ma- maybe some of this will make a a outtake reel. Who knows?
1: No, I don't think I'm done.
0: Well, Jim Reed, thank you for being a guest on our episode of Comet Talk, where we talk about folks that uh, graduated from the class of 1974 at Bishop Kelly. Thank you again and uh, stay tuned for our next episode.